Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This is the John Oakley Show podcast. I'm Erling Bunn and filling in this week for John Oakley. And here's what's on the podcast today for August the 6th, 2020. We all know it's not going to be long. It's going to be fall. Weather's going to turn and the students are going back to school. In these times, we have a lot of questions. We're looking for answers all over. And today we go to Israel. Only this one is a cautionary tale. Also, we're talking about mental health more and more in this crisis. Who's going to feel it? When's it going to hit? Where's it going to hit? How is it going to amplify the problem that we're already looking under rocks and talking about? Now we have an idea on how this virus may affect people's mental health, and it certainly could hit the most vulnerable. The Attorney General of New York making a massive announcement today of national importance. And who was the subject? The NRA looking to slay that dragon. They want to close it down. The NRA says it's all political. Schools, how do they open? We're focusing. We're looking on what's happening in the city of Toronto. We're looking what's happening province by province city by city, town by town in the United States, county by county, everywhere we go, we're looking for clues, what works and what doesn't work. Interesting story today coming out of Israel. You know, as we all kind of anxiously consider how we're going to reopen schools, there we have Premier Doug Ford saying there's going to be stringent rules. Well, in Israel, they're saying don't do what we do. There was an infection in a school and it spread and spread and this could be a cautionary tale. Joining us is Ellie Waxman, professor with the Wiseman Institute of Science and head of the panel of experts advising the Israeli government's National Security Council. Thank you for being here. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Hello, everyone. Let me ask you, you know, the whole world, we're looking to learn, and you were quoted as saying, don't do what we did with the schools in Israel. What went wrong? Uh, So I should first uh, emphasize that um, in Israel, all the restrictions uh, were relieved uh, at a very rapid uh, pace, not only on the education uh, system, but also on uh, event halls and uh, restaurants and bars and things like that. And uh, all of these uh, contributed to the new outbreak that we are experiencing. And due to the very fast pace that the steps were taken at, uh, it is actually difficult to disentangle the the contribution of each of the different uh, components. Um, So this was one of the major uh, mistakes or failures. That so it was too fast, right. too soon, you're saying, in so many ways. And that resonates, certainly, with so many communities, because we're seeing, once the virus goes down a bit, the bars are opening and schools are opening. And as you're saying, it was a collective thing. How did it begin? How did it start in the school system? 
Um, so we originally had a plan to uh, reopen schools also uh, gradually, starting with the lower grades up to third grade, first uh, um, physically attending schools, but with a smaller number of students per class and with uh, proper distancing measures. Uh, and um, keeping the older grades uh, uh, to remote uh, learning. Um, but in practice, this was not implemented. Uh, essentially, the uh, school system uh, came back to a full activity within a matter of about a week, and with old grades and without any distancing measures and without any proper regulations. And this was, of course, a mistake. And you call it, quote, in this New York Times article, it was a major failure. Uh, So what you seem to be saying, it was kind of an overconfidence. And we've seen that in so many areas that once certain communities or areas feel that they've beaten this virus, it pops back up. As you look at what went wrong, what could have made it go right? Would it have been doing things in stages or would it be having stricter rules? Uh, so, uh, first, I think we should all realize that uh, the virus is here with us for some time now. And as we resume normal activity, new outbreaks will occur. There's no way to avoid this. Uh, but there is a way to uh, uh, resume nearly normal activity of the society in general. Uh, but if we, if we do two things, one, we need to keep the prevalence low. Uh, the level that Canada has already achieved by now, so mm-hmm. a few dozens per a population of uh, 10 million. Uh, and the second is to build a very effective capability, uh, very uh, efficient uh, contact tracing capability that will enable us to uh, suppress new outbreaks as they happen uh, very rapidly. With these two measures uh, at hand, uh, it will be possible to resume activity and suppress the outbreaks as they occur without uh, reinstating social distancing uh, rules. Um, and for the schools, uh, of course, you need to uh, prepare proper regulation. Uh, now it is being done uh, in Israel. The new school year would be opened in a different uh, manner, uh, as I mentioned before, starting with the lower grades and in capsules and introduced numbers of uh, students per class, and only later... Uh, resuming activity at higher rate and allowing sufficient time between each step in order to take corrective action if needed. You know, one of the things we worry about with this virus, and it brings us together because all the challenges that you're talking about, those are challenges in Toronto, they're a challenge in Canada, they're a challenge in the, the United States, is that we we can't do everything. You know, jobs, 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 getting the economy open. We saw that message very strong in the United States, and as mentioned in this article where you're featured here, is that was the feeling in Israel there was overconfidence, almost a euphoria saying, let's get everything back together. Is there a realization of reality now, Ellie, that 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 is just not possible? Are people's minds in a different place? Uh, I believe that people view things differently here uh, now. Uh, I believe that we, the public and essentially the government learned the lesson. Um, I should also emphasize that uh, 
It is often stated that there is a, a conflict between the health uh, interest and the uh, economy interest, but this is not really the, the case. The only way to uh, resume a normal economy, uh, economic activity is to suppress rapidly the uh, epidemic, and then uh, when we achieve very low prevalence and we build this very efficient contract testing capability, uh, resume uh, the activity. This is the only way by which we will be able to uh, resume almost full activity in a sh- relatively short time and cause a little dam- as little damage as possible to the economy. If we don't do this and we do not suppress the uh, epidemic efficiently and rapidly, uh, we would cause, on the longer term, a much bigger damage to the economy. Mm-hmm. And that's the lesson learned. And I, I can see that is the message here. Um, let me ask you one of the things, and it's happening, we're watching it in the United States. I know a heat wave had something to do with some of these rules being tossed aside in Israel, that it was really hot. So they were, you know, the kids are going back to school. Then they said, you know, you don't have to wear your mask. And a lot of the rules they put in place, they said, okay, we're going to, we're going to adjust that. We're going to say, okay, let's not do this right now. Many people are wondering if it's the air conditioning being inside that is doing this in the United States. So is that willingness to fudge the rules is that seen as one of the ways you can achieve what you've just described? Uh, yes, definitely. Uh, we should be strict with the rules um, because we should realize what the consequences are for bending the rules. Um, and uh, I think that the government and the public should get a very clear message about the implications that uh, uh, would be uh, um, caused by the uh, bending of of rules. There is a price to to pay, and it is much higher than keeping your mask on when it's hot. Ellie Waxman, did you change your mind on this after things started opening and you saw how fast that virus could come back? Did you think one way before and what you're saying now came later? Uh, no, no, what we are saying now uh, is written in the reports that we've uh, produced to, for the government mm-hmm. already in mid-April, well before mm-hmm. the new outbreak uh, occurred. And we actually highlighted the danger, exactly this danger, uh, predicting what will happen if we do not take the proper actions. Yeah, uh, so this unfortunately, is... Uh, this is, uh, this is what was done is not uh, according to our uh, recommendations, and the result is what we see today. Ellie Waxman, thank you for joining us and giving us that cautionary tale from Israel. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, and good luck. And good luck to you, too. Ellie Waxman is a professor with the Wiseman Institute of Science and head of the panel of experts that were advising the Israeli government's National Security Council. And um, this uh, comes out of a piece that is being shared widely, originating in the New York Times, and offering uh, advice. And Ellie is quoted in the piece saying, don't do what we did with Israel. If we just heard him, he explained opening things up, overconfidence, fudging the protocol and the rules 
schools and Israel is being touted of having grabbed that virus by the throat and wrestling it to the ground and we see them and this story you know it started in one of the schools they brought it home it spread and the next thing you know they had a major outbreak Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast wherever you get your podcasts. in the country. It doesn't take much. Mental illness. And who is most vulnerable here? You know, we've talked so much more about mental illness as a society than we ever have. And now we're, we've got something that compounds it, don't we? We have this virus. One of the most at-risk parts of our society is apparently women. You know, we're hearing about women under a lot of pressure, especially mothers who have to take care of their children at home. And at the same time, they have to work from home. They got to do it all. And some of the projections are that women could be hit the hardest and face a huge increase in mental illness. All Canadians are involved in some of this projection, but why women? Uh, Joining us is Catherine Abel, who is a professor of psychological medicine with the University of Manchester, joining us from there. Catherine, thank you for joining us. Oh, that's a pleasure. Very nice to be uh, given the opportunity to talk about this. We can take a leap and kind of understand the kind of mental stress so many people from around the world are feeling. But women keep getting brought up that they're in a a more vulnerable situation. Why is that, Catherine? So, you know, I mean, the really interesting thing about this, of course, is that it's not a new phenomenon that women are more beset by common mental illnesses. And what I mean by that is depression and anxiety, essentially, and all the ramifications of that, whether it's PTSD following a trauma or whether it's uh, phobias or, you know, fear of flying, all those things are much more common in women. Um, and I guess, you know, it's really important that we, that we uh, try to think about what that gender difference means. And I think in this particular circumstance, we're seeing not only that gender difference as we usually do, but what we're really seeing that's different here is a widening of that, what we call health inequality. And I think the very specific reasons that here, which are different from usual, but overlap with the usual reasons that women have more of those uh, problems, is the childcare issue. So what we're really seeing is the burden of domestic duties is falling on women So people are locked down at home. Mm -hmm. They have children who can't attend school. They're trying to work at the same time. They're still burdened. And it tends to be when we've interviewed women about this and when we've looked into it in more detail, that they're taking the burden of childcare whilst at the same time trying to work like their partners. Um, So my sense is that in this particular circumstance, that the domestic is coming to the fore, if you like, and raising its ugly head again. And we, we've known this has been a problem for women, you know, for many, many years. We've known that, you know, 
uh, essentially people have children, but of course the burden of having children lies upon women, particularly when kids are much younger. All right. I want to ask you a little bit. You know, it's been such an economic shock, this pandemic. It has been a mental shock and a physical shock and and, and an economic shock. So we have it from a couple of ways. You know, when we look into socioeconomic inequality, often women are in service jobs that may have been affected as well. So there's kind of a double, triple whammy here, isn't there? I think that's absolutely right. I think, though, what we may end up seeing, we mustn't forget men, obviously, they, they make up slightly mm-hmm. more than um, half of the population um, because of the discrepant, uh, you know, genocide of women, of course. That's a whole other issue. But um, I think what we're probably going to see over time is that when job losses start, when the furlough schemes and the government schemes that have been helping people out uh, come to an end, that we start to see job losses and much more of an economic effect coming in. But I think we're going to see some more problems in men in slightly different areas. And I think what we're probably going to be anticipating there is an increase in addiction, substance use disorders, those kinds of things. And indeed, we may end up seeing, I think there's a a sort of a, a muttering that we may see um, an excess, even though it's incredibly rare compared to uh, common mental disorders, so really, really orders of magnitude, much more rare. But the appalling circumstances of male suicide, I think, mm-hmm. again, may emerge. And I think we may particularly, my prediction would be, see that in middle-aged men. But you're quite right that currently um, the fact is that low-income, part-time, temporary, zero-hours contracts and, and low-quality employment is the majority of that is, is undertaken by women and, of course, by migrant populations. And that's the other group that I think we weren't seeing an effect in, a widening of the already existing effects mm-hmm. in those groups, that we, but we may end up seeing those as the economic uh, fallout occurs. Catherine Abel, thank you for joining us. We appreciate your expertise on this. Thanks kindly. You take care. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, All that's right. great. Uh, Catherine is Professor of Psychological Medicine with the University of Manchester, joining us from the UK. And there we have it. We keep hearing this. And it, it, this kind of comes, and I don't know how it's being accepted by everyone, this this awareness that we've had about mental illness and this person, a lot of famous people coming out, and we're learning a lot more, and we're listening. There's been some criticism, we're listening, but what are we really doing? And where can people actually go? And he Here we have, we say this economic impact, just going through how shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Women are economically impacted. The NRA, once symbolic of one of the free spirits and the gun law, 
part of the United States of America and the power of the NRA, even during the last election campaign, was felt very strongly. Now, a little bit of a bang today. The New York Attorney General filing a lawsuit seeking to disband the National Rifle Association. And in this suit, they claim top officials diverted millions of dollars from the gun group for personal use, enriching their families families and giving money to close associates. What does this mean for the NRA? Joining us for analysis is Thane Rosenbaum, legal analyst for CBS. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Arlene. All right. This hit with a bang. The NRA, once mighty, we know they've been going through some internal struggles with accusations happening from within. And then we get this lawsuit from New York's Attorney General. Thane, what what are they alleging here? Well, mostly, Arlene, that there's self-dealing, that there's four uh, lead officers of the NRA who, over the last three years in particular, have essentially, you know, received the benefits of tens of millions of dollars, uh, some of which fraudulently done, funneled through an advertising agency so that it, that they wouldn't be reported as if it was personal income to any of these officers. So, for instance, they were simply being reimbursed by the uh, advertising agency. So it's tens of millions of dollars involving uh, trips, uh, private yachts, uh, private jets, uh, trips around, tr- travel for all family members, uh, bonuses, uh, salary contracts uh, for even after uh, uh, the contracts are finished, uh, post-employment contracts, without having any of them be approved by the board of directors. Remember, Arlene, the NRA is a non-for-profit. So that's what this case is about. This case right now, it's a civil case. It's being brought by the New York Attorney General, because the NRA is uh, its charter, it's organized under the laws of the state of New York, um, which is one of the reasons why President Trump today said that the NRA should move mm-hmm. to Texas. And uh, live a beautiful was, life, he, he said. Kind of like him moving to yeah. Florida, I think. Yeah, exactly. Remember, this is the mm-hmm. same attorney general who also shut down the Trump uh, nonprofit. So you can see, you know, the words witch hunt in President Trump's mind, right, that the Trump organization, its foundation, was shut down by this woman for very similar things. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you a nonprofit? Are you there simply to accept funds that would be tax deductible in order to use them for private gain? That's and they had, to pay like a, they had to pay a couple of million dollars, and, and they were not allowed, they're not allowed to run a charitable organization there. You, you know, when you bring this all up, the word political comes into it. I mean, we can also hear, and we can, you can see a little bit of this starting in the statement from the NRA. They're talking about, you know, it's an attack on the organization. We can hear it now. They're coming for your guns. How political do you expect this to get during this election year? Very political, Arlene. But, you know, the NRA's position is, hey, notice that this is now August, right? Mm -hmm. This wasn't Mm -hmm. brought last year. It was August. Look at this as clearly being timed to affect the November election. Uh, The Attorney General of New York could have brought this at any other point, but she chose to bring it right now. So that's what they're claiming. They're claiming that this is a violation of our, forget the Second Amendment, right, Arlene? This is not about gun rights at all. What she's saying is, this is a violation of our First Amendment rights, right? That we have the right to assembly, that we have the right to create this organization. 
and you don't like our organization, so the government is trying to shut down our organization for political reasons, and that's a violation of the First Amendment. So they're, they're not raising a Second Amendment issue. They're raising a First Amendment issue. This is a politically motivated uh, tactic by the government to shut us down because our organization takes political positions that you don't like, and we use our money to support candidates that you don't like, specifically the president of the United States. All right, Thane, you know, to complicate that argument, and, and you're right, it's being put forward by the NRA, but we have seen the internal struggle. Some of these same charges were happen- happening from within the NRA. People were let go, and there was a, a sign of financial insecurity and not knowing where the money went. I mean, these were echoed right from inside that house. How does that move this forward? Very much so. You know, most people don't realize that the former president of the NRA, Oliver North, remember back from mm-hmm. the, you know, mm-hmm. the Reagan administration, mm-hmm. he was the president of the National Rifle Association, and he resigned within the last because year. Because of these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he said, I don't want to be here when the House gets shut down and people are going to claim that I'm responsible for not taking proper oversight of what's going on here. So I'm out. He was com- completely worried about the financial improprieties, and he, didn't, he wanted to distance himself as much as possible. There are, there's all sorts of people now who have been involved in trying to bring a much stricter corporate governance to this organization, who said today, I wish it didn't require the Attorney General of New York. I wish we could have done this on our own. We knew we had this problem. Why didn't we fix this? Now it looks you know, that we're, our enemies are taking us down. We should have been able to fix this alone. So you're quite right. I mean, you know, the only thing that's different here mm-hmm. from the Trump administration is that this is a giant organization. The Trump Foundation charitable arm was small. It was shut down very easily. The NRA is not going to go away easily, <laughs> even though they've, they've lost tens of millions of dollars for all sorts of reasons. Legal fees is also, as I said, improper payments to their own officials. But they're not going to go down easy. This is going to take years to untangle. And they're they're prepared to bankrupt themselves, I'm sure, in order to spend legal fees. So the question is, what will it have as an effect on November? Is there enough money in in the coffers of the NRA to be able to help fund the Trump uh, campaign? Because, you know, this will not be resolved between now and November. Yeah, and it may affect them. And didn't they just... Didn't they just announce, the NRA, that they're going to pump a lot of money to try to help the president and the vulnerable swing states? And this happened just as we were all awaiting to see what this big national important announcement was coming. Yeah, and, you know, you can imagine whomever it is that they're challenging in those states is going to be able to point to the NRA and say, that's a corrupt organization. Look at who's funding my opponent. My opponent is being principally mm-hmm. funded by a corrupt organization involved in all kinds of financial irregularities, uh, uh, self-dealing, uh, failure to monitor uh, officials, uh, failure to, to maintain corporate governance practices. Uh, and that's, who, that's who's funding. So, yes, they, this is why I said some of the officials are upset that they didn't handle this from within, because now this exposes them to a kind of, you know, they're tainted, so to speak by what's happening. And by the way, it's not just New York State. It also is the uh, uh, prosecutor in Washington, D.C., is also undertaking his own investigation in connection with the uh, corporate governance issues regarding the foundation alone.
Okay, final question. As we look at this whole thing, there's a little bit of deja vu. We heard some reporting early as we were looking at the Trump administration, I think in the beginning of the Russia investigation and all the deluge of interest on the president of the United States and his dealing. There was some reporting that there were people with questions about the NRA and and their funding of the last election campaign and questions about, you know, other people around the world. Is there a sense that we're about to find more about this finding? I think we are. Again, I'll go back to what some of the officials who have already withdrawn their support from the NRA have said. Mm -hmm. We should have done this our own because we knew it. Even four years ago, there were questions. Everybody's been raising questions for years. We allowed it to get to this point that we are now three months away from a major presidential election, and we may be now neutered, stripped to some of our power, some of our authority in speaking on behalf, as, a, as a nonprofit because we're tainted by these allegations. But you're right. Remember, the NRA mm-hmm. was the first organization in the United States to support President Trump mm-hmm. early in the primaries. Mm-hmm. They stepped in. They helped them out a lot. Remember, at first, President Trump, you know, who was seen as a reality TV host, seen as a joke. Well, one major right-wing organization came in very early and supported him. He feels beholden to them, and they're connected to him. So we're not surprised that the same attorney general that shut down the Trump Foundation is also taking a shot at the NRA. It makes sense, which is exactly what Trump is saying. Witch hunt, right? This is, we've heard this before. We have, and stay tuned, as they say in the reality world. There may be more. Thane Rosenbaum, thank you so much for joining us. Legal analyst with CBS. Thanks, Thane. You take care tonight. Anytime, anytime, Arlene. Thank you. I'm Arlene Bynum. Thank you for joining me as I fill in for John Oakley for August the 6th, 2020, weekday afternoons, 3 to 6 Eastern. You can turn that dial to 640, and if you're not in the GTA, You can still listen, 640toronto.com. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.